Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of IGN Unfiltered, our monthly interview show where we sit down with the best, brightest, most fascinating minds in the games industry. I am very pleased to be joined by Brian Fargo, role-playing game legend. I think that's fair to say, don't you? Yeah, I've, got been, a, I've been called worse. You've got a hell of a resume, which we're going to talk all through. I mean, Bard's Tale and Fallout and... Uh, uh, everything that Interplay ever did, because you co- you founded Interplay, so there was a lot to talk to you about. Yeah, yeah. I want to start actually with a with a rumor I found about you, which I, I suspect we'll find out if it's true. Otherwise, I'm going to look real dumb. Uh, is it true that you're part of the Wells Fargo Fargos? Ah, uh, that that from that, from the that, that is, way back. That, that is true. My my I think it was my great 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 uncle. Okay. Had uh, founded Wells Fargo. Uh, it's too bad that it wasn't my grandfather. Otherwise, <laughs> it might have come right down the yes. chain, right? But you know, nobody gives their brother's kid all the money in <laughs> stock, right? So, so uh, it didn't affect me in that way. But, but that is true, actually. And I'm actually related to Winston Churchill. Uh, oh, really? The, yeah. One of the Fargos uh, uh, married a Marilla Churchill. She was a Marilla Churchill Fargo, and she was related to Winston. So, hmm. and then, do you also have ties to the founding of American Express as well? Yeah. Apparently, the, the uh, the, uh, was it William Fargo? I, I, it was his son that was, um, uh, they, they, uh, they sort of helped invent the traveler's check. They were traveling to Europe a yeah. lot. And carrying cash became problematic. And so uh, they uh, basically, they didn't come up with a credit card, but it was uh, sort of, they went from Pony Express, and then it basically the American Express, it was, it was uh, what do I want to say, uh, traveler's checks. Yeah. So it went from traveler's checks to credit cards. That's, that's my understanding, yeah. That's so interesting. That's, yeah. Uh, you have it's just fascinating family ties there. Go figure. I, I get a good treatment when I go to Wells Fargo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's talk games a little bit. You're, uh, you've, been, you've been in the games industry for quite some time. You've made a hell of a mark. Uh, your parents bought you an Apple II when you were a teenager. Yeah. Uh, and that was seemingly the catalyst for your, for your career in games. Uh, were, they, were they okay with that? Or, or were they hoping you'd become like a mathematician or a, a financier or something? No, you know, I'm, I'm really fortunate that my parents were real, they were supportive of what I was doing. I mean, prior to that, I had the old Magnavox Pong machine and the Atari VCS, and I would go to the arcades religiously yeah. and, and, and so but I had no sense of how these things were made right just just none whatsoever and uh, it was finally when the Apple II when I when I asked my parents if they would get me one because I wanted to learn and you know thankfully they could a afford it and b they supported it and and that that really was like okay now I really get it and so I immediately uh, wanted to be involved with computers uh, I was programming at the time, but mm-hmm. and I would have been in any, any part of the computer business, right? I mean, I mean, beyond me to think you could actually make money with games, right? But but just to be involved with computers at all. So uh, yeah, no, that was a big moment for me. That's great that they were supportive and didn't just didn't just think of it as a toy, because it seems yeah. certainly back then in the earlier days, I'm sure a lot of parents and would have been even well within their rights to think, oh, that's. 
that's a waste of time. Don't, yeah, and it was expensive. Involved. I I, th- I want to say it was it was, uh, I mean, it was over a thousand dollars for the Apple II and for the hard drive. And yeah. boy, if you want another sixteen k of memory, that's gonna <laughs> that's gonna run you some extra too. Uh, what was your favorite game as a kid? Oh, God, on the computer or anything? Uh, yeah. What sort of were some of your early favorites? Uh, well, I mean, I played a Always lot played. of Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, I mean that that was the thing. It it was kind of funny because I was uh, I actually. Uh, uh, athletics were my 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 big passion in high school. I was training for the decathlon. Oh wow! I was one of the fastest guys in the league, and I could do a lot of things. Uh, but at the same time, I loved computers and I loved Dungeons and Dragons. So I had a very diverse group of friends, yeah, as, as, as you might imagine. And so, um, uh, but but you know, Dungeons and Dragons certainly was was a big influencer on me. Uh, a lot of reading too, fiction, and then on computers, it was it was like today. It's like you know, I I, I spent a lot of time with. Well, all games, but virtual reality right now is something, and I just try to get my hands on everything. And so, back at the time with on the Apple II, it was it was the old Sierra games, it was the old Scott Adams text adventures. Uh, I remember there was a game called like, like Computer Bismarck or something. It was a strategy game where you'd make a move, and the computer would like take like two hours for it to make <laughs> its turn, and you'd come back and hope that it didn't crash. And so, you know, I played everything I get my hands on. Now, Fergus Urquhart was in here uh, doing this this show, and he he said the same thing. He was a big pen and paper D and D guy. As a kid, yeah. does that and do you do you figure that's probably not a coincidence that you ended up heavily involved in computer role playing games after after being a D and D guy? Yeah, well? absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I mean because that, that was where we got all of our great thrill, and we you know I, we we'd stay up all hours of the night playing this thing, and, and of course there was the, the social part of it, but there was also the rules, and I always found the rules fascinating, and in part I always thought it would. It would I always thought law would be interesting too, because I always felt like like we were always like pulling the spell book out and say, well, you know, I have a twenty foot cone of silence, yes, but I casted this spell to overcome it. And we're like, you know, like legal scholars looking through, you know, trying to figure out whether it was appropriate what was going on. So I always got a kick out of that. Uh, tell me about your first game, which, if I have it right, is it was called Labyrinth of Mardigan. Right. Well, it was called the. Oh, you know, you're right, Labyrinth of Mardigan. That is correct. That that was something I did in high school. With Michael Cranford, who ended up working with me on the Bard's Tale. So, what? T- tell me about the game. What was it about? What was what was the so, play? Well, that one was kind of funny. So it, it was. I mean, it was all in basic. It was all we really understood. And what that was is we'd make this. I'd make this room. This kind of simple. Uh, puzzle room where I think it was just a, a series of, of of choices of you know one two or three or yes or no and then you'd have to figure out how to get out of the room. Well, Michael, his parents didn't buy him a computer, so I would give him the computer and he'd take it home for days and he'd do his room right and then he'd bring it back and I'd try to solve his and we went back and forth back and forth all summer and we put all the rooms together and put it into a, a packaging and I just sold a, you know a few here and there. How Actually, cool was that? Yeah, really, yeah. So did you even intend for it to turn into a product that you would do something with, or was that just sort of an organic of you guys going back and forth? I, it was really just the organic going back and forth. You know, that I thought, well, well, let's try to mix the two together, and it was it was a mishmash of stuff. But it was, uh, you know, it, it was good because I, I think with it, it taught me how to finish something, right? Yeah. Which is always, uh, you know, I always I always say starting games is, is, is easy and finishing them is, is hard. And, and so I think there's some, uh, some good things that came out of it. There's, there's always feature creep can always get in the way, right? You can always want to add one more thing. To yeah, and just getting all the bugs out and everything <laughs> else, yeah. Do you, ever, do you ever fire up that first game from time to time? Do you I, still have it? Uh, I, do, I have the packaging. Uh, I, I'd have to make, find an old Apple II and get it to run. <laughs> I don't know that I have the code for that, but I'm pretty sure I bet I'm the only one in the world with the packaging. 
I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty rare. Well, if anybody should have it, it should probably it should be, be me. You. Well, you'd, yeah. you'd think so. There's so many games at Interplay that I don't know why I didn't take a, a crate home every time we ship a game and just put it in storage. So I found myself scrambling to get copies of things uh, later. Well, right before you started Interplay, uh, you were making educational games for the World Book Encyclopedia. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> what were you doing? What were those? So what that was about was I had, let me think, um, I don't remember how I got... So I was at a company called uh, Boone Corporation. It was all Stanford graduates, and they wanted to get in the software business. And they had money, but they really didn't know what to do. So I was the vice president, and I was running the company, and that, or the, the product side of the company. And, and that's a whole story into itself, right? And so that company started to implode with lots of infighting and things like that, and, and, and fist fights. I mean, that crazy stuff, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, well, this is how corporate America works, right? And... Uh, so it was sort of time to do my own thing, and I had met somebody who worked for a professor at UCI. He says, ah, you know how to do software. We're getting a contract from World Book Encyclopedia because we're going to sell the, it was the, the peanut, it was the PC Junior, door-to-door with educational software. We need somebody to do the work, and it was, it was, it was a $120,000 contract. Wow. Well, you can imagine, I'm, I'm 20 years old, yeah. I mean, and it was a In long time early ago. Early 80s, maybe? Yeah, so that's like a fortune, and they said, we'll give you uh, a third, and you, you do the work. And I said, well, you know, how about half? You know, I am going to do all of the work. <laughs> and so th- that's what we did, and so that, that $60,000 was the seed money to start Interplay. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, now and I have that packaging too. <laughs> good, good. In fact, that actually I'm going to move ahead because this you mentioned you mentioned the, these sort of uh, you mentioned talking about fist fights in the in the in the studio. Uh, Richard Garriott was in here recently as well. Yeah, uh, I don't mean to keep name dropping. Yeah, no, no. Other other RPG. I guys. never got in a fight with him. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so he was in here and he told me this, this was fascinating. I, I read his book. I don't know if you've had a chance to, to see uh-huh. it yet. He told me that he saw a whole lot of drug use. When he got out to California among game developers, uh, did, during during that time, that sort of early eighties time frame, did you did you see anything you like know, that? Going no, no, no. I, I heard about it, and, and I know probably know what companies he's talking about too. Uh, <laughs> but but no, not not no, not 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 down where we were. I mean, we you know we. <laughs> Listen, when I started my company, I actually had to have my employees. I, I wasn't old enough to buy a beer, right? And so that, that was the, about the extent of the drugs that, that we had. Uh, so we're going to talk, obviously, a lot of RPGs with you. What, what is it about the role-playing game genre that, that draws you to it? Well, I mean, certainly there's a kind of an emotional passion side to it in that uh, I grew up playing them, and it was a big part of who I was as a kid. And then with that, I, um, I love pushing the art of something, Right, I mean, I, I obviously have to wear a business hat when I come to this because sure. if I don't, I'm not going to stay in business. But I like pushing the craft of what it is. So whether it was, you know, barge cell going like, you know, a lot of barge cell was was driven by the fact that at the time you can only do one thing at a time at a computer, like you do one single thing. So the big breakthrough with barge cell is you could play music at the same time and keep the game, not freeze the whole game up. Yeah. That was like a huge deal, right? And so you know, the idea of incorporating music. Uh, and uh, color graphics and that sort of thing in a genre was something that, that I thought was pushing the envelope, and then Wasteland with the more open-world nature of it. So it's driven very much by uh, passion and craft, I think. So you started Interplay at 20, if I have it right here. That, yeah. Uh, and, and I'm guessing that, again, given your, your family background, that your parents were, your family was very supportive of your entrepreneurial efforts. 
Uh, yeah, no, they've they've always been great. I mean, I have to. I mean, I mean, I give them a lot of credit. So for whatever I was doing, they were they were very supportive uh, with with my endeavors and and anything they could do to help. They didn't really know what I was doing at that point, right? <laughs> but, but they thought it they thought it was good. So yeah. So uh, and then at first you were you were a, a for hire development house interplay. That's right. Uh, what what made you change to to wanting to publish games as well? Yeah, so so at the time, a lot of the games that were being made that were successful were made by very small teams. Uh, it was Dr. J and Larry Bird go one on one, or Bill Budge's Pinball Construction Set, or, or, or even Aclabath and, and Ultima series, mostly by Richard doing yeah. a lot of the heavy lifting. So whereas I, I I wanted to do sort of games with more talents coming into it than just a two people. Uh, Wanted somebody to answer the phones rather than us, right? Wanted to have an office building. Wanted to have like a real company. And we did the Bardstale, right? And we made we number one, and we were just making a little bit of money. Yeah. And then we do Bardstale 2, another number one hit. We're making a little bit of money. So I remember the time I went to Electronic Arts and said, hey, you know, I, this is as good as it gets. And, <laughs> and, and I, I wanted, we were like over 10% of their business or something. It was a big, wow. it was a big piece at the time. And I said, I got to improve the deal. Otherwise, what's the point? And I said, can we get our royalty to like 20% from 15? They're like, absolutely not, right? So uh, I said, okay, all right, well, then I'll just, um, the only way to do it is to start financing it myself so I can get a bigger piece of the pie. And so that, that, that's what drove me towards being a publisher, was just so for survival more than anything. Well, and maybe EA probably, maybe they rue that day. They could have <laughs> had a, a better business relationship with you. Yeah, all things, <laughs> all things are meant to be sometimes, right? Uh, so... Ton of great RPGs at Interplay over the years. Bard's Tale, Wasteland, Fallout. Do you have Do you have a favorite kid amongst all the the games over the years at Interplay? Of 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 a role playing game or just in general or or, or? In, I mean in general, yeah. Yeah. Any any that really stuck out to you over the years that just are really extra near and dear to you? God. It's it's so hard for me to pick one only because there there were there were pivot points at Interplay where if not for that game we would have gone out of business. Yeah. Right. And so so I can't help but pick those. Right. So 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 <laughs> so sense. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Bard's Tale. Right. And then when we uh, and then when we I, I think it was uh, um, uh, Castles we we t- there was Battle Chess we were the first affiliate publisher. Right. So we bet the farm. On Battle Chess, right, and it worked, and, and we moved to the next level. And then we had to break away from Activision, a, a different Activision than today. They were going bankrupt. They were my distributor, and so I had to pull off, and I had to go to direct to uh, all of the retailers. And that was a nightmare because I had to take back returns from products I'd never got paid for to begin with. So if castles didn't work, we were out of business. Wow. And so it, it, there's been a series of those along the way. I think I remember we did a game with uh, with Blizzard. It was RPM Racing. Yeah. And uh, it was. Yeah, I was uh, going to ask you that next. Yeah. So I'm actually to borrow money from my my wife's father just to buy because the the units were like twenty dollars a piece, right? So if I want another. Uh, uh, you know, twenty thousand or yeah, twenty thousand. You know, or five thousand pieces. That's a hundred thousand dollars right <laughs> now. We have no money, so we bet the farm on that. You know, and so to me, it was all those seminal titles that that made a big deal. I mean, Fallout certainly is my biggest impact on pop culture, and it, you know, it, it's my people don't know what I do. I bring that one up, and they go, "Oh yeah," you know. <laughs> so you know, you, you can't help but pick that pick that one. But uh, there were just so many important games that were critical for our survival that I would be. Uh, it wouldn't feel right by not by not putting them on the list. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you, I mean, you you just sort of touched on it. You were sort of in a, in a way involved with the founding of Blizzard with with RPM Racing, um, 
Boy, I, I foolishly didn't write that. I forget their, their name at the time. It, well, Silicon and Synapse. Here. Yes, right, thank you. Right, uh, right. So, yeah, how do you end up meeting, uh, meeting up with those guys and, and working on doing the game together? Well, so I knew them. I mean, at the time, of course, there was no Internet, and so we were kids, basically, and uh, we, would, I would, we would get a game and we would trade software, right? I mean, that, that was the thing back then. You, I, you didn't even... The store had very few things. We 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 make copies, right? Which you can't do today, <laughs> or weren't supposed to do anyway. But we we were, you know, that's how I, I knew those guys. And um, uh, later, uh, Alan uh, went into the military, and, and Interplay kept going. He got back, and he said, "I want to do what you're doing. That looks great." And I said, "Well, let me help you." And so we gave them their first contracts to get them launched into the business. Wow. That's uh, that's that's a nice notch on your belt, right? Yeah, I was I, was, yeah. I helped I helped kickstart Blizzard in yeah. a way. Well, you know, and the, they actually I actually own ten percent of Blizzard, right? And people go, I oh, can't believe you sold it, <laughs> right? But in fairness, um, there's things called drag along rights, and so when they wanted to sell their company to Davidson, I got dragged along with it, even though I wouldn't have stopped it anyway. I wouldn't have said, you know, I'm going to hang on and yeah. mess up the deal, right? Yeah. I would never do that, so. But, you know, imagine if they, if they said, no, please keep it. You know, wow. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah, but it wasn't, it wasn't an option of mine. But, yeah, no, they, they were, I always like, you know, uh, I, I like to think I have a good eye, uh, good eye for talent, right? I, I sort of, my that is part what of, you're known for. Part really. of my job is to know a good idea when I hear it and, and know good talent when I meet them. Uh, you're credited on a bunch of other fascinating games over the years. I, w- I want to throw some out and just, if you have an anecdote or memory, okay. feel, fr- feel yeah. free to share. Because there, there, there are some even here I didn't know. Like I knew, you know, I've, I was a big, big PC gamer in the 90s and, and uh, was familiar with a lot of these. But uh, you, you actually got to work with Nintendo. Uh, Mario teaches typing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I got a funny story with that one. So at the time... Uh, Mavis Beacon teaches typing was yeah, the, that big, was the hit. big one, right? And I knew Les Crane was Software Toolworks, and so I had seen somewhere that like over half the people were buying it to teach their kid how to type. So I thought, well, God, you know, a, a teacher, you know, what's more interesting than a teacher? But Mario, right? <laughs> so sure. I went to Nintendo and I pitched them, and they loved it. So we put Mario Brothers out, and it's a huge success, right? And and then uh, he. Uh, he got so angry with me. He, he, well, I actually went to his show, and, and, and he, was, he was giving me like this stink eye, you know. And my wife goes, well, that guy really doesn't like you, you know. And I go, well, oh, my gosh, you know. So I call him up, and I'm like, did I do something? He goes, no. <laughs> I said, really? No. He goes, no. I said, well, get us in the tone of your voice, you know. He goes, he goes well, yeah. And I, <laughs> and I go, well, you know, you're, you're competing with me. I said, oh, come on, you know, you're competing with other people, right? Anyway, he was so mad at me. Anyway, we made up for it later, but <laughs> kind of funny. Because, uh, yeah, like, I feel like Nintendo doesn't, they don't really do that stuff anymore. I guess they were... Well, well actually, we did Mario Teaches Typing, then we did Mario's Game Gallery. Uh, um, uh, Miyamoto, he, he liked what we were doing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so everybody was happy, and then somebody else came out with some other Mario product that was not high quality, and so they came back and said, no more mm. with Mario. And we said, yeah, but you like us. He said, Brian, we do, but that, he, he says, no more. That's Somebody it. else ruined it. They ruined it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. The gravy train comes to I know, end. I know. That was, a big, that was a big success for us, Mario teaches typing. How about, because uh, this one, I always, I always remember this and just laugh because it, it, was, it was sort of a humorous game. Clay Fighter. Yeah, yeah. That was, a game, that was pitched to us by Visual Concepts, and they were doing some great work. And uh, yeah, that that was that was also that was a big success, and, and we had a couple things. But one is I remember we got Bruce Buffer, 
right? So, you know, instead of let's get ready to rumble, he says, let's get ready to crumble, right? And so that was always kind of a crack up. And then we, we did well with that. I remember Blockbuster, we did a special version for Blockbuster. Huh. It was like a limited just edition just to rent, just yeah. for Blockbuster. And we made like a million dollars on that deal. Wow. And that probably made our entire year. And that's what they're good. There go the questions. Yeah. That's one thing you'll find in business. You'll, you'll do all the, you'll do a hundred things in business and then you'll get to the end of the year and you're like, if we hadn't done that one thing, it wouldn't have been a profitable year. That's why you got to do the hundred or the hundred and one or whatever. It all comes down to one or two things that makes the difference. And yeah, Clay, Clay Fighter was sort of Sort of this almost parody of the, the 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 fighting game genre, which was huge at that time. Yeah, from yeah. Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat. But yeah, yeah. It, it was it was good. People liked it. They really did. They really did. It had a lot of personality. Uh, and then this one, this one's very near and dear to my heart. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. So wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I just remember this game so fondly, Out of This World. Oh, yeah, Eric Shahi. That was, uh... So back in the day, uh, one of the things I used to do, which I loved in my business, and it, it finally stopped, 
was I would go over to Europe for the trade shows like ECTS, and there'd be it'd be like you know like an E3, and there'd be booths up and down the thing, and I would try to find product that I thought could work in America. Smart, right? That's smart. And, and, and so and, and I had plenty of competition, but it was whether I had a better eye mm-hmm. and I could negotiate getting yeah. it. And so I, it was Delphine Software, and I loved the work they were doing. Yeah. So that's where I got out of, uh, out of this world or another world. Uh, and then Alone in the Dark was the same thing, right? And then I, I, I did work with Gremlin Software, and so I was always sort of sourcing. Eventually, those companies started to set up shop in America. Figured it out themselves. And, 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 I would, and I couldn't get the rights. But, but it was sort of a, as an intellectual exercise. It was fun to just, because remember, there were hundreds of games. Sure. So you got to find just the right one and figure out how to make it work. Find so, all those needles in the haystack. Yeah, yeah, I quite enjoyed that. <laughs> so by the mid-'90s, Interplay was up to over 600 people at the company, which that's a lot for a AAA game studio now, yeah, uh, yeah. let alone back then. Yeah. Was, it, was that too much too fast in hindsight, do you think? Uh, yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we, you know, we, we, we were, in some ways, uh, we were a victim of our own success, and, and I'll tell you why I say that. So we did, uh, like we did RPM racing, and it, it did great, right? Yeah. So, okay, let's do, let's do more of that. I did a pool game, virtual pool. It sold three or 400,000 pieces. I remember that. Let's do sports, right? We did Mario Teaches Typing, sells 700,000. Let's do educational software, right? And so we had hit in every single category. We had role-playing. Let's do more of that. So mm-hmm. we took all of our strengths. Now, at the same time, uh, Universal Studios had come in and invested into the company. And they'd put $10 million in, which sounds like a lot of money, but except in the games business, that goes quickly, right? And they said, let's build this thing up. So it's kind of a perfect storm, right? And we had all the success. They threw in the money. And then everything didn't work in every category, right? It was like we had, we had like every single thing stopped working. And then we also had deals in Japan with Matsushita, and they didn't come through on their side. It was just like everything at once. And so, yeah, it, it, it was, it was, that was a miserable time. But... You know, it, we we did at least. I, I'm very proud that because we we've always had more financial pressure than most, and we've usually had less resources than most. But yet, when I look at the '90s and what we did at Interplay, we were putting out some great stuff oh, yeah. despite all those pressures. It was Baldur's Gate, Fallout, Planescape, Torment, Descent, you name it. Right? I mean, there there was a lot of uh, uh, maybe not Descent was early. We didn't have so much financial pressure at that point. But later on, anything from the, kind of '95 on, uh, we had guns at our head, but we were staying you know true to the quality of the of the, of the company. But certainly, we were too big. Yeah. So uh, tell me about your memories of the, the origin of Black Isle, because, it, it, of course, the legendary role-playing studio, it formed within Interplay. Right, right. So that came about because we were doing lots of different kinds of products, right? We were doing strategy games. We had a game called Max. Uh, we, had, we were doing adventure games, uh, uh, like I said, action games, role-playing games. So I said, well... Most of the companies that have a brand associated with themselves, they do one kind of thing, generally speaking. Then you're like, you know, EA Sports, we know they do great sports, right? Um, and, and so I felt like that we were getting diluted in co- what, what does Interplay represent? So I didn't want to represent nothing. And so the idea was, okay, let's, let's divisionalize these groups. Okay, Fergus, you know, you're going to run the RPG group. And I think Fallout had already shipped when Black Isle got formed, even though it was a lot of the guys were in Black yeah. Isle. Uh, and, uh, you know, th- they came up with the name and he ran the group and off they went. And each group did their thing. And then it was, in a way, survival of the fittest as to who could make their groups work. <laughs> did you know that, that uh, the Black Isle group was, was something special, that they, were, that they were the best of the best? 
Yeah, and I mean, they were always super. T- I mean, that was our bread and butter role playing games. But yeah, we, we had honed ourselves for many years, and, and we had the right sensibilities. So when we, with a lot of this stuff, if you're going to be in a category, you need to be talking about it 24 hours a day, yeah. right? You know what other people are doing, what innovations are happening, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that that was a big uh, part of it. And of course, we started. We gave Bioware the first break too, mm-hmm. right? Shattered Steel with Shattered Steel, and uh, which was not a success. But we thought, well, you know, these guys are talented. Let's give them another try with uh, with Baldur's Gate. And I got into the Dungeons & Dragons license, right? Mm-hmm. Which at the time I was told was a horrible idea. I remember one of the <laughs> leading publishers says, you know, Brian, you, you're nicheware for nerds. That's all you do, you know? And I said, well, you know, we're, I mean, for us, getting D&D was like a big deal. Sure. And of course, you know, it worked out great. So, so yeah, so that's kind of how it all came about. So when, when Black Isle wanted to do Fallout, which was inspired by your game, Wasteland, which is uh, very revered, what did you think when, when Fallout gets, gets pitched to you? Well, uh, post-apocalyptic has always been my favorite category in terms of film and, and, and books, right? And so whether it was you know, references of Mad Max or Swan Song or Canticle for Leibowitz or, you know, you choose it. So I've always been drawn to that. And... Uh, so uh, we, uh, I had tried to get the rights to Wasteland back from EA for year after year after year. So I finally gave up, threw in the towel, and said, "Let's just do one ourselves." Yeah, right. And so that's how Fallout was born. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, and, and then we studied the sensibilities of Wasteland. Said, what made that work? Like the open nature of it, you know, the skill-based system, blah 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 blah. Right. So so that that we sort of analyzed all the things that we thought worked. And there's also a lot of things where. The names are very similar too, <laughs> as you go from uh, Wasteland to Fallout. So, and I imagine that, uh, I mean, you, and you were you were very personally involved with Fallout. I imagine that that was a that was a pretty personal project for you, given given it, its. You know. it, it was, though I will say, and it was for sure. But then, you know, what I try to do is I try to get the groups. I try to bring lots of talented people together, best of breed. I'm not going an orchestra pit, right? <laughs> and and it gets to a point where a game. Sort of create, starts moving on itself and becomes this organic thing like magic. And those guys started firing on all cylinders and they started doing things that I wasn't involved with, which was great, right? So, my, me, I would fight for things that I knew were right, you know. So, when they started going with the 50s, kind of the innocence of the 50s mixed with the violence, I went, brilliant, right? I mean, yeah. you know, so, so they kind of ran with it and made it bigger. You know, I think all these games are about making something bigger than any one person could ever do. And how can you facilitate that kind of environment and allow that to happen? So, is it fair to say that you, you left Interplay over a power struggle? Well, I think it depends on the definition, but but I, maybe I should just tell the story, and then you can use whatever words you what you think. Uh, the well, so we did. The, you know, Titus came in the company. We'd gone public. The, the public market kind of depressed. It left us in a vulnerable position. They were going to come in and shore up our financing, and and so that wasn't a healthy relationship. And then at one point, I had a buyer for the company, and 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 they had over. Traded their their negotiation, which turned off the buyer, hmm. and it, and and I was sort of scrambling for for many many years, just trying to shore us back up financially, and I got very very close. Uh, I, I, we had like fifty million dollars of debt at one point, and, and I'd worked it down to five. Wow! And then I had somebody coming in that was going to like take out the five, put money in the bank. And I was like, you know, I can get back to to doing what I do. Sure. 
And uh, they said, yeah, you know, we kind of might want to do a hostile takeover. Well, so after, you know, what I thought I was a pretty incredible effort, I thought, oh, you know what, I'm going to have a heart attack, right? I mean, this is, you know, and I had very small share of the company at that point. So I just said, look, I'm not, I'm not going to fight about this. You go for it. I got to do something else. And so that, that, so however you want to categorize that, that that's what happened. Did it, did it kill you to, to walk away from the company you'd built? Yeah, it was tough. I mean, it was uh, it was who I was, right? I mean, you, you, I was uh, identified with it, and then uh, of course you got to see later, like who's returning my phone calls now? <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, he's not in a power seat. Well, now what? Right? So that was that was a, that was kind of interesting to see what happened there. But but yeah, no, it, it, it was definitely tough, and I I loved my people, I loved the product, and you know, and I felt like it was you know not in the best of hands, but I, I you know, I, I couldn't uh, do it. And I take responsibility for, for all the bad decisions that got us there, too. It's not like everybody else's fault. Right. Business is tough. I mean, we're in the entertainment business fundamentally. And, and uh, you know, a lot of the companies, we didn't have that, that seminal hit, the, you know, that, that Grand Theft Auto, that Tony Hawk, the THQ wrestling, yeah. that, that thing that could just ride you through the hard times. And you look at a lot of entertainment businesses. Like Universal had it with the monster films, like in the 30s or sure. 40s, right? What was that thing? And Baldur's Gate was big for us, but we had a big, heavy uh, royalty load to Bioware and TSR. Mm. So if it not for that, those two things, of course, it wouldn't have existed without them. But that aside, financially speaking, if we didn't have that, we would have been in a far different position. So we didn't have that one title that was sort of that, that was controlled, you, you could, know. or you, that you could rely on to right. go back to the well. Right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So. Did uh, do you do you actively are you rooting against Interplay? Are you kind of rooting for them to fail after that, or or is there a part oh. of you where you know because you built it, you still you know, you still have a soft spot for them in your heart? I, I, I would never root against my people not having jobs, right? So 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 so, so no. I mean, I mean to me, uh, you, you 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 sort of get yourself back up, you know, and dust yourself off, and you move on to something else. It's positive. So so no, no, I never rooted against against them in that way. And that something else is in exile which you founded in 2002. That's right. That's right. Uh, I suppose the the name has a very personal yeah t- touch on that. Well, so that came about you know, we, we were we were going to the trade show in 2002 or I think it's yeah, 2002. And I couldn't get a business card unless I had a name of a company. Yeah. And so we're, we're like okay, came up with the workshop. That was the name of the company. Just made one up so we could print it up. And they said, well, what do you want for your title to be? And I went, oh, leader in exile, right? <laughs> Just as a joke. And so I went to them handing out the cards. And then at the show, people started coming up to me going, oh, I heard about your card. Let me, let me get one. And uh, so after had two or three people sort of proactively hunt me down to get one of these cards, I thought, well, maybe we're on to something here. And that's, that's how, the, how the name came about. That's a cool story. Yeah. Um, how fun was it for you to bring back the Bard's Tale? In 04 on the PS2 original Xbox PC. Uh, well, I, I I had a blast making that game, and I, I mean that that was uh, you know as you know we, we we took a very different turn on that right. So I didn't have the copyright to use hmm. for the Bard's Tale, but I liked the character, and we we were. We wanted to do something like we liked the stuff that that Snowblind was doing with their engine, yeah, the right? Top down action, yeah, RPG, like the Dark, Dark Alliance, right? Yeah. So, so I really, I kind of liked what was doing, being done with Dark Alliance and and financing there. It had to be console if I was going to get any financing at all. So, so more action of oriented bent, but I didn't want to do a straight up Dark Alliance. I wanted to give our taste of humor with it, and so I, I still sometimes I'll watch YouTube. Uh, videos of some places in Barcelona that I've forgotten about, and it, it's just so funny. I just, I just, some of the stuff in there is just so clever and witty. I love it. 
you later you set the Kickstarter record for fastest project to a million dollars. Yeah. With uh, Torment, which Tides of Numenera, which as we record, yeah. just just released. Uh, how was the experience of not having to answer to any corporate overlord or any you know any any person upstairs that was t- yeah. telling you to do stuff? Well, I think as as, as a creative person, there's I think there's two important factors to me, right? Is is that is that that you're doing what you want to do, right? Which is that's one part that's not e- easier said than done. Sure. But as important is that you're doing it the way you want to do it, right? Because you could do be working on it, but be made to do it in a way that isn't yeah. with your style, and so that was the best part. So for me, with both those projects, we were actually having fun. Making games again, and, and that we could be uh, nimble and uh, making adjustments of something that that, that that felt right or didn't feel right without fear of not being paid, right? So, I mean, because it's the ultimate honor system, right? Which is our True. backers are like, here you go, go make the game, please deliver, don't let us down. And so, you know, we 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 like that, and, and we you know now now we're we, we're two for two. We've come up with a good quality product, so you know. Keep it going. Yeah, Wasteland Two was yeah. was actually before that. That that game turned out absolutely great. Yeah. Uh, how did that? How did it feel to to get that back and bring that back? Well, that one, that one was also especially nice. I mean, it, it, kind of the serendipity of the things that put me on the map were Bard selling Wasteland, and here I am back with Bard selling Wasteland. Right. So I, I like that. And, and EA was was great. I mean, you know, people give EA a hard time, but you know what? They're a great company to deal with. They're very professional, and they're like, yeah, we're not going to use it. And they, I strike a deal to use the copyright. And that what what was allowed me to do a proper Wasteland sequel, and now a proper Bardstill sequel, yeah. too. So that was a lot of fun. And, and then kind of as we sat and going over all the material, and oh, yeah, you know, remember the little nuances of it all. And, and we put a lot of things in Wasteland, too, where if, like, you don't have to have played the first one, but if you did, there's some great little little Easter eggs and little inside jokes that are very funny. Well, uh, you mentioned bringing, bringing those back, but now we've got uh, Wasteland 3. Also, yeah, we're just warming up. Yeah, what's uh, what can you tell us about Wasteland Three? Uh, well, you, you know, uh, so we're very happy with the way Wasteland Two came out, uh, but we we had to invent a lot of systems and how things were going to work, and and so now we're like, okay, we we know what things really felt good and things that didn't, and now we're able to start building upon something and not because Wasteland Two was really starting from scratch. You couldn't mm-hmm. build off of Wasteland One. It was a Different twenty-five years, right? Right. So, so that not not as uh, as uh, useful. This is really useful. So now we're able to focus even more so on the writing and on the nuances and on the animation. And the thing that I'm most uh, excited about with that, other than just sort of like I, I, you know, we want to do the be the best post-apocalyptic RPG, no doubt about it. And and we're like I said, I got the whole writing team from Torment, and some of those guys worked out on Fallout New Vegas, and so we got a great group. But also multiplayer, which we I think is fascinating. That and again, single-player narrative experience, you won't even know multiplayer is there, so don't worry about it. But we get that right. But there is a time, you know, and and Divinity: Original Sin shows that that it can be fun to play with your friend. But I really want to focus on what it means to play with your friend, not like okay, you attack, I attack, or you know, I have the key and you have the lock, and we, you know, but but like from a narrative perspective, and, and so that's something where I want to push the craft of what that means to have a, a, a multiplayer narrative game. Speaking my language, I like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, what do you think of Bethesda's fallouts? Uh, you know, with them well, picking I mean, up the torch. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I mean, brilliant what they've done with it, right? I mean, they've made it one of the biggest franchises in the world. Uh, the, uh, I think going first or third person brings an immersion that you don't get with isometric, so i got to recognize that. Uh, that's why in Wasteland 3, for example, bringing the camera down for conversations, we th- I mean, when you're having a conversation with a character and you're looking at him and he's talking to you and you're hearing the audio, it puts you more in the scene. So even when the camera comes out, that little guy is much more alive than had you not seen oh, yeah. him. Right, right. So, so I like that part of it, but we don't want to give up the tactical side. So, but you know, Bethesda certainly uh, notes that as they, as they know the, from the immersion. And then they did a more of an open world, of course, right? you know, the, kind of the freedom for what the player can do. You know, that was, to me, like the real the biggest innovation. So, you know, I think they've done a fine job with the franchise. So, uh, last question I, I, I've got to ask. I'm curious, you know, you've just made so many great role-playing games, so many great games over the years. Uh, what do you think of the RPG genre as a whole now, and where do you think it's heading in the next half decade or, or ten years? Boy, it, it's, you know, it's so hard because I think in more incremental steps, right? Like I could say, okay, I want to work on multiplayer narrative and what that means. You know, and then when I get done with that, there'll be something that, that, that dawns on me. It's hard for me to jump ahead 10 or 20 years in that regard. Um, but uh, I, I think the, kind of the, the openness of the worlds is not going to go away. People like that freedom. I mean, the thing that makes a role-playing game good to me and I think to most people is that I play it the way I want and, it, and then it pays off when you do those things, Right. And so a lot of times in narrative games, they don't pay them off enough because it's difficult to pay off nuances of your decisions. It's easy to say, you know, you need nine pelts and you don't have them and you don't get the thing, right? I mean, but there's a payoff when you get them. That, that's, a, that's a different, a whole different vibe. But, you know, I, I have to say that, 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 that virtual reality uh, is, I mean, I'm not saying because we're working on a role-playing game in VR, but, but when, you, when you're... The, we're talking about immersion and how powerful it is from a camera perspective. Well, now if I'm walking around in the world, that changes everything. And so, so I, I think that clearly that's where it's going to be going. And some people say, I don't know if I want to spend 10 hours in a game like that. But as the fidelity comes down, and you know, it, it, I, I, think it, I think it's inevitable that this is kind of where we're going. Well, Brian Fargo, thank you so much. Uh, it was a pleasure learning more about your career. Uh, Wasteland, Fallout, Bard's Tale... Uh, all these games are Mario teaches typing. Everything Interplay was, was such a wonderful publisher for, for so, so many years. I uh, appreciate having you on, Brian. And for much more on the uh, best minds in the video game industry, be sure to keep it tuned right here every week for new segments and every month for new episodes of IGN Unfiltered. What if you discovered you could move between the worlds of dreams and real life? That's the story of Dream Breachers, where Evan wakes up on his 12th birthday and realizes that something he dreamt about the night before had actually happened. With the help of his friends, a reappearing stranger, and a mysterious organization called the Dream Academy, Evan will discover what it means to be a Dream Breacher. Dream Breachers is a high-stakes sci-fi mystery adventure about the highs and lows of having all your dreams come true and is perfect for kids ages 8 to 12. If that sounds like a dream to you, you're in luck. You can listen to Dream Breachers now, wherever you get your podcasts.